Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Today, we're talking with Roger Morgan Grenville, who is the chair of trustees at Curlew Action and is in the middle of walking the length of the UK from Southampton to Cape Wrath in Northern Scotland, all in a bid to raise money for Curlews. Hi, Roger. Hi, good to see you. It's great to meet you. I was, uh, you know, looking at your trip and super inspired. But the first question is, this is a massive walk uh, to raise funds for the Eurasian Curlew. A lot of people don't know what that is. So can you maybe just, just tell us a little bit about this incredible bird? Yeah, of course. In North America, you have the long-billed curlew, and that's, I think, the biggest wading bird you have there. And this, the Eurasian curlew is our biggest wading bird, and it's got the most beautiful sand. And if you know your listeners want to do something that really thrills them, go on YouTube when they've listened to this and then press Eurasian curlew call. The issue, that they were once very plentiful. When I was a boy, and I'm 62, they were all over the place. But we've lost 70% of them in the last since 1970 and so you know we've set up this charity to take practical steps to try and reverse it and i thought what can i do to raise the money and then i thought well you can do a stupid walk and here i am so what is causing the uh, the loss of of such great numbers of, of curlews You've basically got, it's called a three-legged stool. You've got three things that a ground nesting bird depends on, which is the habitat, the food source, and the predation. And any one of those legs of the stool gets kicked away and they all collapse. And the biggest problem has been habitat loss, mainly through the way we farm. So as an, here's two examples for you. When you take hay, you take it in the late summer, by which time all the ground nesting birds have finished and fledged. If you take silage, you take it at late spring when all the birds are lying on their eggs. So you kill the birds. And we are basically taking lots and lots of silage, sometimes four or five cuts. And then another one is forestry. You know, everyone gets it. There's global warming. We have to plant lots of forestry. But Curly can't operate in forestry, particularly Sitka spruce, you know, covering all the hills. So those were two, two of the reasons. But one of the biggest reasons has been predation. If you go back to, and in North America, you've got more apex predators than we have. But if you go back, you have to go back 500 years to the last wolf here and about 400 to the last lynx. And the problem where the apex predator goes is what you call the mesopredators, which are the rats and the stoats and the crows and the buzzards and things move in and no one challenges them. And then the other thing is the great apex predator of all were the gamekeepers. And at the beginning of the First World War, there were 23,000 of them. And now there are 3,000. And those 23,000 were controlling the predators and that's not being done. So, you know, I just think the, the curlew has just about everything stacked up against it. Its other problem is it's quite a big bird and it's quite it, the chicks are quite conspicuous. We just put a little group of us together and said, right, we're going to just go and shout about it and we're going to fund people doing projects, fund electric fences around curly nests and things. It's great. It's going really well. That sounds like a really uh, great project to work on. And, you know, at your scale, you can actually see the results directly, which I think must be really rewarding, you know, that you actually are seeing seeing the results in real time. 
Your walk is really interesting to me. I love looking at maps and on your website, you have this incredible map. It's just a dream to go and like find your route in the map. Uh, I love it. But can you maybe explain uh, or describe, you know, the, the places you're going to go to and this, the scale of, of your thousand mile walk? It's something that I'd always wanted to do. And it's kind of, it's a bit of a rite of passage for adventurous people in the UK, which is walk from the south to the north. And, but most people do it when they're 20, in their 20s and 30s. And actually, I, I wanted to do it at a slow speed. No, I mean, I'm doing 20 miles a day, but I, I wanted to see things for myself when I'm walking at three and a half miles an hour rather than sitting on a train or sitting on a bicycle. I did nothing more complicated than take a bit of string and try and find the shortest distance between the north coast and the south coast. And then, because the other thing I'm doing is I'm writing a book on the biodiversity project that I'm seeing. And so I'm going through about 11 different habitats like mountains and river systems and heathland and rocks and urban and choosing one project in each. So every now and again, I dip down into a city. So I'm going to Sheffield and Edinburgh and then I've got a huge project which is the Caledonian pine forest regeneration. But I think that's probably a thousand square miles. And then a tiny project of a little garden allotment in Sheffield with a hedgehog box. Trying to say to people, you know, don't wait for other people to do this. You can do it yourself. And my, my big thing has always been, everyone talks about climate change and quite right, but it's a real slow burner to fix it. Whereas species loss we don't know how bad it's going to be for us but it's so easy to fix you know if we can stop removing these species so that's kind of become the drum i beat these days and i'm very comfortable in it because yes it's activism but it's it's pretty soft core activism yeah it's really interesting you know you, you talk about going slower and walking and you do see it it's a totally different type of adventure because you see things change not over, you know, 10 minutes in a car or on a train, but you see it change over days or hours and you see the slight variations in the wildlife and the topography and things like that, where I always find that one of the most interesting parts is that the subtle changes are the things you always miss when you're always moving. But when you can slow down, that's kind of the most exciting part, I think. And that is so true. And the, one of the things I've been learning in the last few days is that we tend to go to nature reserves to go and see nature, which is stupid. Nature is everywhere. And we have this crazy idea in, certainly in my country, that we are generously giving a home to nature rather than the other way around, which is nature is giving a home to us and we're part of it. I was, I'm in a little town called Tamworth tonight. And as I walked in, and I walked in up the road, and there's this huge lake with gulls and cormorants and everything else going on. But it's about two meters above the road, the path. So everyone drives past day after day after day. And I bet they don't know it's there. And I saw more wildlife in the mile and a half as I was walking into town than I'd seen the rest of the day out in the country. Because actually one of the, one of the extraordinary things about so much of the wildlife in the UK is actually it quite likes human beings. Now, not all of it, but some of it does. You're right. If you're driving 70 miles an hour up a motorway, not, not, it evolves very, very quickly. Whereas if you're walking, you know, from one hour to the other, you notice a hill in the distance and then two hours later you're on it. I love that. Yeah, that's the best part. I've done a lot of walking in the UK and I know when I first, you know, first moved to the UK and started walking, I was really surprised 
because of, you know, the ability to kind of walk almost anywhere, you know, the, the right to roam, I think it's called, where in most places you can walk through farmer's fields and you can actually, you know, walk in nature. You don't have to find trails. For your route, are you just going along roads or are you actually like going along footpaths and over stiles and kissing gates and all those wonderful things that make English walking so pleasant? I'm keeping off um, roads if I possibly can. I mean, today was a bit of a road day, but I, that's because I, I made a bad call that a particular river was going to be jumpable, a little stream. And then I got there and it was 15 metres wide and full of water. You know, basically, I'm using footpaths, I'm using old railway lines. And once I get up towards Scotland, I'm using the old system of drovers roads, which is where they used to drive the cattle from the Highlands to Edinburgh and then down to London. And there's something I find really thrilling about just putting your footsteps in in the footsteps of history. A few days ago, I was on a the oldest road in Britain, 5,000 years old, called the Ridgeway. It's a chalk path down south. And, you know, it's just me. There's no one else there, just me and the birds. And I thought, you know, there's 5,000 years that I'm following. It's sometimes very difficult in a very built-up country to get in touch with your historical version. And again, that's one of the things I'm enjoying in this trip. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, it's, it's, I had a similar experience, you know, walking on the Roman roads in the Lake District and just thinking like, these were built 2,000 years ago. And these are, you know, you're walking, you know, some Roman or some slave built this so long ago. It is kind of a, a thrilling experience. One thing that surprised me, you know, when hearing about your story is I remember spring walking in the countryside when I lived in the UK and it was like, it was muddy and it was really tough. You know, I haven't lived in the UK in over a decade. What's it like now? You know, like, like this seems an early time to go, to go walking. Are you still dealing with the mud pits and, you know, difficult spring conditions? Yes, there's plenty of mud. The weather actually at the moment is fantastic. And for the next seven or eight days, it's dry, it's dry and cold, which is kind of what you want. If I get a really, really cold snap, where you know, very rarely it goes down just a minus 10, minus 15. I know you guys aren't there. It goes way lower. I'll deal with it. But one of the things I'm trying to do, and the thing that's dictated the timing for the trip, is spring used to go northwards through our country at one mile an hour, which means one mile an hour, which means if you aggregated all the elements of it, you know, hedges going green, trees going green, frog spawn appearing in lakes, um, swallows arriving from the continent, it went north at about 20, 25 miles a day. And that has doubled in the last 50 years. And that's a real problem because for lots of reasons. One is that nature isn't resting up properly. So, you know, the flowers that are coming out in January just have not rested. The other problem is that the migratory birds will arrive and their food source will have gone because it's all ahead of them now. And so and that's been a that's been a real issue. So what I'm trying to do is walk at the front edge of spring. And it's quite contrived, but it's also quite fun. Because you just see, you know, today I saw the, my first chiff chaff of the year, which is a little bird. And then as I go further north, it will happen more and more. But I'm trying to bring attention to people that one of the problems for the curlew and everything else is not just the, the climate change, but climate speed, the speed of the seasons. Yeah, you know, I never even thought of these kind of second order effects of migratory birds. If spring comes early, they don't realize that and they show up and there's nothing to eat and 
uh, you know, you just realize how everything is so interlinked and something that you think, you know, you never even thought of has such um, serious consequences. So quite a few of the migratory birds, that's been a, a real issue. So, yeah, what I'm trying to do is I'm taking a bit of a bet with myself, which is that I could be lucky with the weather um, and call me in about a month and ask me how well that went. But the, you know, I, mean, my, my, I was a soldier for a long time and they always said, your skin is waterproof. It's what you put over it that isn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, like, I like that statement. In choosing to do a trip that's a thousand miles what kind of training did you have to do? Are you naturally active and this is just, you know, a, a long walk for you or is this quite a stretch? No, this is a stretch. No, um, I, I am naturally active, but I'm not, I'm not a big, you know, I listened to a couple of your, your uh, older podcasts and I'm not a, a sort of trail runner or I, I'm not someone who could go on the Pacific Crest Trail at, at 40 miles a day. What I actually did was I bought a really decent backpack. And then a friend of mine is a potato farmer and I bought 12, a 12 kilo bag of potatoes and put it in. And every time I walked the dogs, I put it on my back. And every time I went shopping, I put it on my back. And every time I walked to the local town, I put it on my back. Because for me, distance has never been a problem. But I wanted to make my back ready to carry weights. And actually, that's that's worked quite well. I don't, I'm, I'm not suffering um, with, with the effects of that. But as I mean, I think my attitude is someone who's fundamentally quite lazy is every mile you walk training accelerates the rep repetitive injury that you're going to get at some point. So actually reduce the training miles. Um, there's not many people who agree with me, but I'm sticking with it. Uh, I've always done the same thing where, you know, I had grand ideas to train and then life gets in the way. And usually the first week is all about, you know, getting the body fit. I do like hearing about the potato sack because I used to get so much stick because I would put tins of beans and those giant tins of tomatoes for the same thing. It's like I need something heavy that's not going to leak that just, you know, when I was walking to work, I just put them in there every day. People were like, why do you've got a, why do you have a dozen tins of beans and four tins of tomatoes? And I, I always got so much stick, but somebody else realizes it's just, you know, they're heavy, they're easy. And when you're done, you can eat them. So better than weights. I like to think I'm the only endurance athlete knocking around who's been called back from a training episode because he's got half of Sunday lunch in his backpack. I had to come bring back the potatoes and then peel them to add insult to injury. <laughs> I didn't take the training very seriously, but I, I really took the kit seriously. And I really took the, for example, I stopped drinking alcohol on the 1st of January because that would help me lose six or seven kilos, which of course takes the pressure off my knees. Um, I stopped eating chocolate on the 1st of January and then I started on the 3rd of January and I've been eating it ever since. I stopped eating cakes on the 1st of January and that lasted till about February. But, and I, I think what I'm trying to do is just be relatively healthy. I mean, I, I, I'm an old style, I'll, I'll eat and drink loads, but to be relatively healthy, just to make it easy for myself. This kind of leads into something else I've, I've noticed. In When I was younger, I looked at, you know, my parents or my friends' parents you know, they kind of got to their 60s and they took up golf and kind of the idea of excitement and adventure left them. But I've really noticed that that doesn't seem to be happening as much right now that when I go out doing backpacking or, you know, if I look at at people that are booking tours on 10 Adventures, people are living much more adventurously. And do you think things are changing or do you think just 
the people are changing? Or are we? Am I just noticing things differently? I, I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, you're absolutely right. They, they are changing, but I suspect that you live in quite like I do, quite a rarefied air of the kind of people who you would know are the kind of people who are changing. And you're absolutely right. You know, my parents, who know they're both dead, but they would think I was completely mad doing this. And when they were when they turned sixty, very much as you described, you know, sit in the garden and work in the garden, don't do things like this. And I have a both my parents died quite young, so I have this determination to keep very active as long as you know health allows me to, because I think that's what you owe your body, and that's not trying to sound clever or anything. If you have, if you are lucky enough to have good health, then don't just sit in a chair and watch it go. So, uh, you know, if you ask my wife, she thinks. I'm very driven on this. And I, I am a bit, but really it's it's nothing more than the call of adventure. And I think that's what I love about what you guys do. And it's what I'm doing in my walk. It's a huge adventure. Yeah, it's, it's just the unknown. And uh, it's funny, coming back to your walk, one of my dream trips for my family, my, my kids, and, and they're pretty young now, so it's not soon, but it is, you know, looking, what can we do with the big, you know, walk across England, uh, and, you know, I have all the guidebooks for, you know, doing the South Downs way, the Cots- we expect we're going to do the Cotswold way in 2020 and just looking at all these different trips because it is a, I think the UK is a, an approachable experience because you have villages and towns dotted around and it, people think it's all very, it's all kind of just England, but it actually is also really diverse with the different topography and beautiful little creeks and rivers and hills. And it, it does have that adventure in a kind of some somewhat urban setting but you can also like you can get away from it and it's kind of like this it seems really easy but or it seems really same but actually i think england's one of the most interesting places because it is it's subtle how the adventure is without a doubt and 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 the south downs way which is where i live is is absolutely fabulous that's 100 miles so it's you know four five or six days depending on how fit the kids are and the, the extraordinary thing is you are within 30 miles of London you can't see a building half the time and you're just on this ridge and you're full of history that you, you've got it in a nutshell what the thing with the UK because it's very small there is incredible variety and up in Scotland where I'm finishing there are they're not high mountains but it's very wild and you could go for two days without seeing a soul whereas um, down south not so much and no, I, I think we are very blessed with uh, the other thing is a coast path. You know, t- it, 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 the there's a 625 mile trail around the southwest coast path in Devon and Cornwall. That is uh, it's fabulous because you've just got villages every 10 miles or five miles and you can camp or stay there. So you're never far from help. And with, with young kids, you've got the sea and when they finish, run into the sea and swim. That's exactly what I'm thinking. It's just, it's every year. It's like, let's get the world back to normal so we can get our kids over. And uh, it really is, you know, it really is special uh, throughout throughout the UK. You mentioned earlier uh, a military career, and I was uh, super interested to see that uh, you led the expedition to retrace Shackleton's journey across the island of South Georgia. Obviously, you know, for me, I've read books and books about this. Uh, I was just like mesmerized. Can you maybe just share a little bit about about what that expedition was? Uh, absolutely. The um, I, shortly after the Falklands War, I was in the about 
a year later, I was part of the garrison and, and I was in charge of the island of South Georgia. And at the time, I had a girlfriend who was in publishing. And she said, well, look, I'm going to give you 50 books to take down for your five months. And if you read them all, you'll be quite well read by the end. And the first book I read was Shackleton South, which you've obviously read. And it is, you know, for your listeners, it is the still, to me, the best adventure book ever written, a most extraordinary adventure book. And he gets trapped in the ice and he goes round and then he they break out the lifeboats and they get to Elephant Island. And then they have this incredible 800-mile journey in this open boat. And finally, he and five colleagues find themselves on the island of South Georgia, which is, you know, if you imagine it, it's shaped like a banana with the end bits facing west. And all the whaling stations were on the wrong side. And so they could not get the boat round. And so he plus two of the others walked. No one had ever walked across the island. And when I was on the way down there, I discovered that since 1917, no one else had done it. And I was very lucky that the guy who was running, the, the general in charge of the Falklands at the time, was a special forces guy who's had a sort of deep sense of adventure. And I just sent a thing saying, please, sir, can I do it? And I think the answer would have been no most of the time. But the answer was yes, get on with it. And so they sent. A, they had to send a destroyer down to get us round there. And the, I, I think the, the, there were two things that were that I found amazing. One was I was carrying the only guidebook I had was the paperback version of his book. So I was walking up this ridge, going, "No, it's not that one. It's not that one." But the one promise the general had extracted from us at the beginning was that we were under no circumstances were we to slide as Shackleton had down this sort of convex slope uh, where they were trying to escape a blizzard and they just thought well we're going to die either way so let's just go and we got there um in 1984 i think or 1985 and i looked at my sergeant and he looked at me and we went we're going to do it aren't we um and yeah we were and so we slid when we, we did check it out a bit first but we slid and years later when I, I met the general somewhere and i said you do know i slid and he said of course you did you know anyone would have I would have I would have disrespected you if you hadn't. But then the other thing was, you know, and I, and I had, I think the expedition were twelve of us, and you know, some quite sort of rough, tough soldiers. But when we were walking up the hill behind the whaling station, we almost could convince ourselves that we could hear the whistle that Shackleton heard, which was the first noise they'd heard made by a human outside of their group for three years. And very emotional. And my, my, my soldiers, we were all very emotional. And obviously, being young young soldiers at the time, we then all thought we were Antarctic heroes. And when we got home, no one was really interested. But no, it was great. It was just a huge privilege to be able to do it. I loved it. That sounds incredible. I've always wondered, how technically difficult was that crossing of South Georgia? Because, you know, in the book, it seems very harrowing. And I've always wondered, like, is this, you know, diff challenging mountaining, mountaineering terrain? Or is it just, hey, it's bad, you know, typical bad weather for that part of the world and it's, you know, maybe tricky snow conditions. But for your trip, was it something where you guys were roped up and had crampons and ice axes and it was an actual like mountaineering objective? Uh, the, the answer is is not technical, but quite dangerous. And it's quite dangerous because I think I think you cross four glaciers and it very much depends what time of year you cross. But we were at the end of the summer, so there were quite weak snow bridges. And we had roped up every time we went on a glacier in teams of four. And I 
I got so cross because I was the front of my team and I just kept falling down a crevasse up as far as my kind of chest. And the language by the end of it was just awful. And I, I, I think it's like everything else in sort of deep nature that as long as you're very respectful of it and you kit yourself properly and you imagine that things will go wrong, you're probably going to be okay. Um, it's when you think, oh, this is a doddle, yeah. And we were we were lucky. We had a mountain warfare instructor from the Royal Marines who was very good. And um, we also had a couple of bottles of whiskey so that when we got you know, got to the sort of bad bits, we, we could cheer ourselves up. <laughs> uh, what an incredible adventure. Coming back to what you're doing right now with Curlews, are there some things that just an ordinary person who cares about curlews or just, you know, wildlife in general that they can incorporate into, you know, their time in nature or, you know, their lives? I think the the key is to, um, and I'm sure it's the same with your long-billed curlew um, where you are. The key is learn a bit, a bit about the bird, learn about the natural history. If you have a dog that this time of year when the breeding season is starting, one of the big problems is people walking their dogs off the lead and the dogs then get stuck in and they find a nest and they upend it and that's the end of the, the breeding for the year. So that's one. The, the other one is to alert landowners and farmers and say, you know, you know you've got curlews there because a lot of farmers and farmers get a lot of criticism and very often they shouldn't. A lot of them are desperate to save them as well. And so we've got we've worked with farmers who say, right, I won't take silage of that area of the field because there's two curly nests. So I, I think it's really just just being uh, being interested and being an evangelist for the curly. And the, the, the other thing which is worth everyone knowing is the, the curly is a metaphor for all the other ground nesting birds. And I don't know what they are. In your part of the world, but you know things like corn buntings and yellowhammers and skylarks. So, what's good for the curlew is good for maybe twelve other ground nesting birds, and that reflects the health of the grassland and the health of the farmland. So, I, I think the answer to the question is: is be interested and keep your dog on a lead in the breeding season. You know, dogs off their leads are a big problem here in the Rockies, especially early in the season where, you know, all the animals are coming out of hiber hibernation or, you know, babies are being born. And I think, you know, that's, I think globally, you know, dogs off leads for part of the year is just, it's just so, so dangerous. Um, if people want to know more about curlews, uh, you can check out curlewaction.org where there is the ability where you can actually donate money to support the work that Roger and the organization are doing. I'll put a link in the show notes Roger also is an accomplished author and, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff we could have talked about, uh, but he's got a really interesting blog at rogermg1.home.blog. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, I just want to say thanks, Roger. This was like so much fun to hear these stories. And, you know, I think we often don't know what's actually happening in, in nature. We have a, you know, a, sh a short view of a couple decades and the changes are so gradual. And I think what you're doing and talking about is, is really important for us to know and just understand what's happening with wildlife. And I Jet, definitely appreciate you sharing your insight and your thinking on this. Well, it, it, it's such a privilege to be able to talk about it and to talk about it with a big enthusiast like you, um, because at the end of the day, it's an adventure. We don't have enough of them. And like you said a couple of minutes ago, you know, let's 
hope we get back to a world where there e- these adventures are easier and more people can do them. But no, it's such, such a pleasure to be with you and let's keep in touch. Definitely. And with that, thanks everybody for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week to explore the world, nature, and hear about more epic adventures on the 10 Adventures podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.